The only the United States had the capacity and the will and the ability to do it, and we did it today. The extraordinary success of this mission was due to the incredible skill, bravely, and selfless courage of the United States military and our diplomats and intelligence professionals. For weeks, they risked their lives to get American citizens, Afghans who helped us, citizens of our allies and partners and others on board planes and out of the country. And they did it facing a crush of enormous crowds seeking to leave the country. And they did it knowing ISIS-K terrorists, sworn enemies of the Taliban, were lurking in the midst of those crowds. And still, the women and men of the United States military, our diplomatic corps, and intelligence professionals did their job and did it well, risking their lives, not for professional gains, but to serve others. Not in a mission of war, but in a mission of mercy. 20 service members were wounded in the service of this mission. 13 heroes gave their lives. I was just at Dover Air Force Base for the dignified transfer. We owe them and their families a debt of gratitude we can never repay, but we should never, ever, ever forget. In April, I made a decision to end this war. As part of that decision, we set the date of August 31st for American troops to withdraw. The assumption was that more than 300,000 Afghan National Security Forces that we had trained over the past two decades and equipped would be a strong adversary in their civil wars with the Taliban. That assumption that the Afghan government would be able to hold on for a period of time beyond military drawdown turned out not to be accurate. But I still instructed our national security team to prepare for every eventuality, even that one. And that's what we did. So we were ready when the Afghan security forces, after two decades of fighting for their country and losing thousands of their own, did not hold on as long as anyone expected. We were ready when they and the people of Afghanistan watched their own government collapse and the president flee amid the corruption and malfeasance, handing over the country to their enemy, the Taliban, and significantly increasing the risk to U.S. personnel and our allies. As a result, to safely extract American citizens before August 31st, as well as embassy personnel, allies and partners, and those Afghans who had worked with us and fought alongside of us for 20 years, I had authorized 6,000 troops, American troops, to Kabul to help secure the airport. As General McKenzie said, this is the way the mission was designed. It was designed to operate under severe stress and attack, and that's what it did. Since March, we reached out 19 times to Americans in Afghanistan with multiple warnings and offers to help them leave Afghanistan, all the way back as far as March. After we started the evacuation 17 days ago, we did initial outreach and analysis and identified around 5,000 Americans who had decided earlier to stay in Afghanistan, but now wanted to leave. 
our Operation Allied Rescue ended up getting more than 5,500 Americans out. We got out thousands of citizens and diplomats from those countries that went into Afghanistan with us to get bin Laden. We got out locally employed staff in the United States Embassy and their families, totaling roughly 2,500 people. We got thousands of Afghan translators and interpreters and others who supported the United States out as well. Now we believe that about 100 to 200 Americans remain in Afghanistan with some intention to leave. Most of those who remain are dual citizens, longtime residents who had early decided to stay because of their family roots in Afghanistan. The bottom line, 90% of Americans in Afghanistan who wanted to leave were able to leave. And for those remaining Americans, there is no deadline. We remain committed to get them out if they want to come out. Secretary of State Blinken is leading the continued diplomatic efforts to ensure safe passage for any American, Afghan partner, or foreign national who wants to leave Afghanistan. In fact, just yesterday, the United Nations Security Council passed a resolution that sent a clear message about the international community expects the Taliban to deliver on moving forward, notably freedom of travel, freedom to leave. And together, we are joined by over 100 countries that are determined to make sure the Taliban upholds those commitments. It will include ongoing efforts in Afghanistan to reopen the airport, as well as overland routes, allowing for continued departure to those who want to leave and deliver humanitarian assistance to the people of Afghanistan. The Taliban has made public commitments broadcast on television and radio across Afghanistan on safe passage for anyone wanting to leave, including those who worked alongside Americans. We don't take them by their word alone, but by their actions. And we have leverage to make sure those commitments are met. Let me be clear. Leaving August the 31st is not due to an arbitrary deadline. It was designed to save American lives. My predecessor, the former president, signed an agreement with the Taliban to remove U.S. troops by May the 1st, just months after I was inaugurated. It included no requirement that the Taliban work out a cooperative governing arrangement with the Afghan government. But it did authorize the release of 5,000 prisoners last year, including some of the Taliban's top war commanders, among those who just took control of Afghanistan. By the time I came to office, the Taliban was in the strongest military position since 2001, controlling or contesting nearly half of the country. The previous administration's agreement said that if we stuck to the May 1st deadline that they had signed on to leave by, the Taliban wouldn't attack any American forces. But if we stayed, all bets were off. So we were left with a simple decision. Either follow through on the commitment made by the last administration and leave Afghanistan, 
or say we weren't leaving and commit another tens of thousands more troops going back to war. That was the choice, the real choice, between leaving or escalating. I was not going to extend this forever war. And I was not extending a forever exit. The decision to end the military lift operations at Kabul airport was based on the unanimous recommendation of my civilian and military advisors, the Secretary of State, the Secretary of Defense, the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, and all the service chiefs and the commanders in the field. Their recommendation was that the safest way to secure the passage of the remaining Americans and others out of the country was not to continue with 6,000 troops on the ground in harm's way in Kabul, but rather to get them out through non-military means. In the 17 days that we operated in Kabul, after the Taliban seized power, we engaged in an around-the-clock effort to provide every American the opportunity to leave. Our State Department was working 24-7, contacting and talking, and in some cases, walking Americans into the airport. Again, more than 5,500 Americans were airlifted out. And for those who remain, we will make arrangements to get them out if they so choose. As for the Afghans, we and our partners have airlifted 100,000 of them. No country in history has done more to airlift out the residents of another country than we have done. We will continue to work to help more people leave the country who are at risk. We're far from done. For now, I urge all Americans to join me in grateful prayer for our troops and diplomats and intelligence officers who carried out this mission of mercy in Kabul and at tremendous risk with such unparalleled results. An, air, an airlift that evacuated tens of thousands to a network of volunteers and veterans who helped identify those needing evacuation, guide them to the airport, and provided them for their support along the way. We're going to continue to need their help. We need your help, and I'm looking forward to meeting with you. And to everyone who is now offering, or who will offer, to welcome Afghan allies to their homes around the world, including in America, we thank you. I take responsibility for the decision. Now, some say we should have started mass evacuation sooner. And couldn't this have been done, have been done in a more orderly manner? I respectfully disagree. Imagine if we've begun evacuations in June or July, bringing in thousands of American troops and evacuating more than 120,000 people in the middle of a civil war there still would have been a rush to the airport, a breakdown in confidence and control of the government, and it still would have been very difficult and dangerous mission. The bottom line is there is no evacuation, evacuation from the end of a war.
that you can run without the kinds of complexities, challenges, and threats we faced. None. There are those who would say we should have stayed indefinitely for years on end. They ask, why don't we just keep doing what we were doing? Why do we have to change anything? The fact is, everything had changed. My predecessor had made a deal with the Taliban. When I came into office, we faced a deadline, May 1. The Taliban onslaught was coming. We faced one of two choices. Follow the agreement of the pre previous administration and extend it to have, or extend, to have more time for people to get out. Or send in thousands of more troops and escalate the war. To those asking for a third decade of war in Afghanistan, I ask, what is the vital national interest? In my view, we only have one to make sure Afghanistan can never be used again to launch an attack on our homeland. Remember why we went to Afghanistan in the first place? Because we were attacked by Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda on September 11th, 2001. And they were based in Afghanistan. We delivered justice to bin Laden on May 2nd, 2011, over a decade ago. Al-Qaeda was decimated. I respectfully suggest you ask yourself this question. If we've been attacked on September 11, 2001, from Yemen instead of Afghanistan, would we have ever gone to war in Afghanistan? Even though the Taliban controlled Afghanistan in the year 2001? I believe the honest answer is no. That's because we had no vital interest in Afghanistan other than to prevent an attack on America's homeland and their fr our friends. And that's true today. We succeeded in what we set out to do in Afghanistan over a decade ago. Then we stayed for another decade. It was time to end this war. This is a new world. The terror threat has metastasized across the world, well beyond Afghanistan. We face threats from Al-Shabaab in Somalia, Al-Qaeda affiliates in Syria and the Arabian Peninsula, and ISIS attempting to create a caliphate in Syria and Iraq and establishing affiliates across Africa and Asia. The fundamental obligation of a president, in my opinion, is to defend and protect America not against threats of 2001, but against the threats of 2021 and tomorrow. That is the guiding principle behind my decisions about Afghanistan. I simply do not believe that the safety and security of America is enhanced by continuing to deploy thousands of American troops and spending billions of dollars a year in Afghanistan. But I also know that the threat from terrorism continues in its pernicious and evil nature. But it's changed, expanded to other countries. Our strategy has to change, too. We will maintain the fight against terrorism in Afghanistan and other countries. 
We just don't need to fight a ground war to do it. We have what's called over-the-horizon capabilities, which means we can strike terrorists and targets without American boots on the ground, or very few if needed. We've shown that capacity just in the last week. We struck ISIS-K remotely, days after they murdered 13 of our service members and dozens of innocent Afghans. And to ISIS-K, we are not done with you yet. As Commander-in-Chief, I firmly believe the best path to guard our safety and our security lies in a tough, unforgiving, targeted, precise strategy that goes after terror where it is today, not where it was two decades ago. That's what's in our national interest. And here's a critical thing to understand. The world is changing. We're engaged in a serious competition with China. We're dealing with the challenges on multiple fronts with Russia. We're confronted with cyber attacks and nuclear proliferation. We have to shore up America's competitiveness to meet these new challenges in the competition for the 21st century. We can do both, fight terrorism and take on new threats that are here now and will continue to be here in the future. And there's nothing China or Russia would rather have, would want more in this competition in the United States to be bogged down another decade in Afghanistan. As we turn the page on the foreign policy that has guided our, our nation the last two decades, we've got to learn from our mistakes. To me, there are two that are paramount. First, we must set missions with clear, achievable goals, not ones we'll never reach. And second, we must stay clearly focused on the fundamental national security interest of the United States of America. This decision about Afghanistan is not just about Afghanistan. It's about ending an era of major military operations to remake other countries. We saw a mission of counterterrorism in Afghanistan, getting the terrorists and stopping attacks, morph into a counterinsurgency, nation building, trying to create a democratic, cohesive, and united Afghanistan, something that has never been done over many centuries of Afghan's history. Moving on from that mindset and those kind of large-scale troop deployments will make us stronger and more effective and safer at home. And for anyone who gets the wrong idea, let me say clearly, to those who wish America harm, to those who engage in terrorism against us or our allies, know this, the United States will never rest. We will not forgive we will not forget. We'll hunt you down to the ends of the earth and we will you will pay the ultimate price. And let me be clear. We'll continue to support the Afghan people through diplomacy, international influence, and humanitarian aid. We'll continue to push 
for regional diplomacy engagement to prevent violence and instability. We'll continue to speak out for the basic rights of the Afghan people, especially women and girls, as we speak out for women and girls all around the globe. And I've been clear that human rights will be the center of our foreign policy. But the way to do that is not through endless military deployments, but through diplomacy, economic tools, and rallying the rest of the world for support. My fellow Americans, the war in Afghanistan is now over. I'm the fourth president who has faced the issue of whether and when to end this war. When I was running for president, I made a commitment to the American people that I would end this war. Today, I've honored that commitment. It was time to be honest with the American people again. We no longer had a clear purpose in an open-ended mission in Afghanistan. After 20 years of war in Afghanistan, I refused to send another generation of America's sons and daughters to fight a war it should have ended long ago. After more than $2 trillion spent in Afghanistan, costs that researchers at Brown University estimated would be over $300 million a day for 20 years in Afghanistan, for two decades. Yes, the American people should hear this, $300 million a day for two decades. You take the number of one trillion, as many say, that's still $150 million a day for two decades. What have we lost as a consequence in terms of opportunities? I refuse to continue the war that was no longer in the service of the vital national interest of our people. And most of all, after 800,000 Americans serving in Afghanistan, I've traveled that whole country, brave and honorable service, after 20,744 American servicemen and women injured and the loss of 2,461 American personnel, including 13 lives, lost just this week, I refuse to open another decade of warfare in Afghanistan. We've been a nation too long at war. If you're 20 years old today, You've never known an America at peace. So when I hear that we could have, should have continued the so-called low-grade effort in Afghanistan at low risk to our service members, at low cost, I don't think enough people understand how much we have asked of the 1% of this country who put that uniform on, willing to put their lives on the line in defense of our nation. Maybe it's because my deceased son, Bo, served in Iraq for a full year. Before that, well, maybe it's because of what I've seen over the years as senator, vice president, and president traveling these countries. A lot of our veterans and their families have gone through hell. Deployment after deployment, months and years away from their families. Missed birthdays, anniversaries, empty chairs at holidays, financial struggles, divorces, loss of limbs, traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress. 
We see it in the struggles many have when they come home. We see it in the strain on their families and caregivers. We see it in the strain of their families when they're not there. We see it in the grief borne by their survivors. The cost of war they will carry with them their whole lives. Most tragically, we see in the shocking and stunning statistic that should give pause to anyone who thinks war can ever be low-grade, low-risk, or low-cost. 18 veterans, on average, who die by suicide every single day in America. Not in a far-off place, but right here in America. There's nothing low-grade or low-risk or low-cost about any war. It's time to end the war in Afghanistan. As we close 20 years of war and strife and pain and sacrifice, it's time to look at the future, not the past, to a future that's safer, to a future that's more secure, to a future that honors those who served and all those who gave what President Lincoln called their last full measure of devotion. I give you my word with all of my heart, I believe this is the right decision, a wise decision, and the best decision for America. Thank you. Thank you, and may God bless you all, and may God protect our troops. And now he runs away from the freaking reporters because he doesn't want to answer questions. That's the president people have put into that White House. He will not answer freaking questions. That is just a bunch of bullcrap. And I am showing the other part of, uh, cause, uh, But I do have something else that I'm gonna would gonna watch if you guys stay because it needs to be shared. Because it's a bunch of bullcrap right now. But right now I'm not gonna I am gonna take that off the screen until she actually starts. (laughs) 
Oh, for crying out loud, Rex, you, I love your comments. I love your comments. I love, but, Jampus, um, the daughter of, um, how does that go, John? What is Jen? What is the press secretary again? Uh, but we're going to do the press secretary too. So let's hold on for a little bit. Um, if anyone would like to come up and share their thoughts about what just we just witnessed, I am dropping the link. Because I know most of you are uh, from Discord, so if you want to come up. Real estate, de real, real estate developer Demetrius Prosoki's daughter is going to give a press conference here in a little bit. And we are going to, uh, and I'm also going to stream that. Because... I want to hear what she has to say with what Biden just said. I want to know why he didn't answer freaking questions. If that was Trump, the media would be all over. But I... God. Anyone's more than welcome to come up and join me. That's why I put the link in there. Because we're going to have a few minutes. It's probably going to be 15 minutes before she comes up and does her press conference to give the, the White House correspondence uh, a little bit of time to get over to her, her place. I am so disgusted with this president. <laughs> oh. oh, for crying out loud, guys, you guys are... You guys are funny. <laughs> oh, for crying out loud, this is funny. You guys are funny as heck. <laughs> uh... Yes, he was. He actually got through that pretty well. He actually got through that pretty well. I will admit that. And I'm on the YouTube page of the press secretary. I will share. I don't know if you got. I will share the screen with you guys, let you see something. 
look at um, look at the likes and dislikes on this. Oh, that is, that's funny. That is just funny. That. <laughs> oh, you guys are funny. You guys are funny. I love each one of you. And I am just going to do it from the White House. I'm not going to be. Because I'm on the White House lives. So for right now, I will do that. Turn them, Turn it on so I can hear what. This is just but I think he's planning on it, but I don't think he's gonna be able to, John. I don't think he's gonna be able to because how often does he give a press conference where he screws something up? Uh, I think I'm supposed to be eight Eastern, eight Eastern, uh, Roger. I need to contact him while I'm. Th But yeah. Uh, but yeah, I am gonna do the press secretary whenever she comes on and I I am gonna ask this question. 
I'm not a predator. I'm not a predator, Paul. How many of you miss um How many of you miss Kaylee McElhinney? Give me a one for a yes, two for a no. Uh, I only see one one, and uh, we have four people in the chat. So, one for if you miss her, two if you don't. But yeah, I just, it's just, it, is it fair to say that this White House is just a shit show for our enjoyment? And John, I will say this now, I like your uh, new t-shirt design. I like your new uh, your new shirt design. When I get when I get my uh, new credit card, I am gonna buy one. So um, But yeah, I'm But when I get done with this, I'll go watch Joe's stream and uh see what time he says. But yeah, this is gonna be a fun-filled day. Oh, so what do you guys want to talk about? Because this will go on. I will put this on. 
And uh, this will go on Rumble. This will go on Odyssey. This will be on my Facebook page uh, that I have. So if you want... Roger, I agree with that. <laughs> I say no. And I will. <laughs> I am going to say no. And, Je and John, thank you. I will put that up as a poll. <laughs> We're going to have a little bit of fun. Uh, <laughs> hey, cheekbusters. Uh, I love you. I love you guys. <laughs> All right. I will keep that up until the end of uh, the real estate de developer's daughter's done. Oh, that is, that is funny, though. Uh, <laughs> that is funny. Uh, that is... Oh, that is funny, though. Oh. You guys, you guys make this fun. All right. Maybe here in about, a, in about three minutes, we should be able, the press secretary should be doing her thing. Um, and before that happens, I am going to do something. Because I need to take a little, um, I need to do something. So, um, I will be right back. Just to, um, I'm doing this just to piss some people off and to give me a moment to do something.
Just wanted to provide you all an update on uh, our ongoing efforts on Hurricane Ida. Uh, the president and his Homeland Security team are closely monitoring the impacts of Hurricane Ida as damage uh, assessments continue. Uh, he has made clear that the state, tribal, and local officials who have requests for anything have our full support, and we are, of course, in close contact. Today, the FEMA administrator and the American Red Cross director in Louisiana to meet with the governor and survey the damage from Hurricane Ida. Administrator Criswell it will travel to Mississippi tomorrow to meet with state officials. And as Ida continues to move to the Northeast, we expect heavy rain to continue. There's life-threatening flash flooding uh, that remains a threat in West Virginia, Pennsylvania, DC, and elsewhere. 
In the Gulf Coast, search and, and rescue efforts are underway. 12 urban search and rescue teams are currently operational in Louisiana to support state and local efforts. The Coast Guard has been doing overhead flights, including in Grand Isle, to search for anyone in need of assistance. So far, urban re search and rescue teams have assisted over hundreds of survivors, and their work continues. Uh, we're also in regular contact, which is a huge priority for people in the region, with private electricity companies to ensure they have the resources they need as they work to restore power in Louisiana and Mississippi, where more than 1.1 million customers remain without electricity. We've seen some people in Mississippi get electricity back, and we're hopeful we'll see continued improvements. There are more than 25,000 linemen from 32 states in D.C. in the region racing to restore power. Uh, and FEMA has staged nearly 250 generators in the region to support impacted areas. We're going to get more generators to the area to get more power to the emergency services that need it the most. Uh, we also want to make sure that individuals in the impacted areas of Louisiana know they can apply for federal assistance. We would encourage anyone in need of assistance to visit disasterassistance.gov or call 1-800-621-FEMA. As of this morning, 48 shelters are open in affected areas throughout the Gulf Coast. FEMA has staged more than 4.4 million meals, 3.2 million liters of water, and more than 124,000 tarps in the region. And additional ambulance crews have been transported to Louisiana and Mississippi. The Department of Transportation also issued a regional emergency declaration for states uh, including Alabama, Arkansas, Louisiana, Mississippi, Tennessee, and Texas, providing flexibility for transporting fuel as well as essential items like food, water, and power restoration equipment uh, to support emergency relief efforts. And today we have two additional actions uh, to announce to increase the availability of gasoline and ease price pressures. First, the department will extend and amend an emergency declaration that offers temporary flexibility to how many hours a truck driver can drive. This applies nationally to goods that support the COVID-19 response and will now include gasoline and other types of fuel, building materials, medical supplies, and food. Because the hurricane is hitting a region that is a key center of the nation's oil production and refining infrastructure, this waiver should help reduce the risk of gasoline shortages or price increases stemming from the hurricane. DOT's top priority remains safety, and this waiver is accompanied by additional safety-related uh, reporting requirements to allow the department to monitor driver working hours. And second, EPA has approved emergency fuel waivers for Louisiana and Mississippi, effective immediately, which will expand the supply of gasoline that can be sold in these two states and increase availability at this critical time. We are continuing to assess and we'll continue to provide you all updates. Why don't you kick it off, Josh? Good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks, Jen. Uh, two subjects. First on Afghanistan. The president said that any additional evacuations will go through diplomatic channels and that the United States has leverage over the Taliban. Can you tell us what those channels look like mm -hmm. and what kind of leverage the United States has? Absolutely. Well, first I would say, uh, I would point you to the remarks that the Secretary of State provided last night, but let me give you some highlights of that. Uh, we have enormous leverage over the Taliban, including access to the global marketplace. That's not a small, uh, it's not, not a small piece of leverage. And in order to gain access to the global marketplace, uh, we're gonna be watching closely, as will the global community. I would note that yesterday, the UN Security Council also signed a, a passed a resolution uh, that made clear to what the expectation is in terms of safe travel uh, and evacuation or departure, I should say, of individuals who want to leave Afghanistan. And nearly half of the countries in the world have also signed on a to a statement making clear that is the expectation. That's the diplomatic side. 
and the other diplomatic components that our Secretary of State will be focused on include establishing a presence in Doha, which is already underway, which is a place where we will be able to operate from diplomatically. So we can have uh, access with consular officers and diplomats who can engage with American citizens or others, our Afghan partners who want to depart. We're working to set that up now. Uh, the other piece is engagement with the Taliban, which will continue uh, through our ongoing channels that we have uh, with the Taliban on the diplomatic front. The other piece of this, which is very important, is operational, which is opening the airport uh, and, and regional airports and also ensuring that there is overland travel that is possible, which means departing, being able to leave across borders. And the president touched on this in his statement. On the airport front, the more specific piece we're working on with the Qataris and the Turks who are uh, important partners here is getting the civilian side of the airport up and operational again so that we can use that not just for, uh, for flights for people to depart, but also for humanitarian assistance, which we would work through programs like the World Food, food program and others to distribute. So there are a number of channels. This is a priority the Secretary of State will be leading. They'll continue to provide updates and we're hoping to uh, make progress in the coming days. And secondly, on the economy, you were asked the other day about the expiration of the extended unemployment benefits. We know that black unemployment in this country is above 8%. It's above 7% in New York, Nevada, Illinois, California. With the expiration, how do you ensure that people in those places still get the support and aid they need? You're right, uh, Josh, it's vitally important to look at the fact that there are different circumstances in different states. So if we just take a step back and look at the national landscape uh, on these benefits, uh, in about half of all states, 24 governors have already made the decision to eliminate pandemic unemployment benefits. That's a choice they have made. In the remaining 26 states, unemployment levels vary pretty widely from 3% to 7%. And half of these remaining states have unemployment rates that are already less than 5%. So there are differing needs in different states and governors are making different decisions. Uh, what we're trying to do and and what we announced about two weeks ago, but obviously there was a lot of news going on, uh, is our uh, effort to put new tools in place to help states that choose to further extend pandemic unemployment benefits because of those needs, because uh, they're states like those you have mentioned, or because they have higher rates of unemployment among African-Americans or other groups that need additional assistance. So the Secretary of Treasury and the Secretary of, Depart of Labor sent a letter to Chairman Wyden and Chairman Neal underscoring and affirming that states can use their allocations of the 300 50 billion of state and local fiscal relief funds included in the American Rescue Plan. That is funding that can be used. The Department of Labor has also made $90 million in career grants available to support comprehensive reemployment services for all Americans and $146 million in reemployment services and eligibility assessments. And the Department of Labor also sent a letter uh, just last week to states with information about how to leverage existing UI program infrastructure to leverage to deliver ongoing support to unemployed workers. We have also been engaging directly with states. We've been engaged now with about 30 states and counting to talk about what their specific needs are and how programs that are available can be eligible uh, to people in their states. Uh, first on Ida, thank you for all that information. Are you still tracking that he might go to the region at some point? He certainly is open to that. Uh, what he does not want to do is interrupt rescue and uh, and um, recovery efforts, uh, which as many of you may or may not know who've covered hurricanes before, uh, people leaving their homes and going to evacuation centers, that can increase in the days ahead. It isn't always just in the day after. Uh, and certainly there are ongoing efforts on the ground, as I just noted. So he's open to that. I don't have anything to announce at this point in time. Obviously, the president of the United States going to a region takes a lot of resources. Um, on Afghanistan, um, 
Is there any sense of if and how many Americans might have left today? Is there even a way to track that for the U.S. government at this point? Well, I will say we remain in touch through a range of means of communication, email, text, WhatsApp. Uh, that's uh, something that we could certainly do from here, but also having a presence in Doha and diplomats in the region will enable that to happen uh, locally or, or re close by as well. Uh, I don't have an update for you on the numbers, um, but uh, that's something the State Department would have the best assessment of. Um, we have asked and talked a little bit about the president's mood over the last few days or his you know, his sense of all of this. A few of us observed, he seemed angry at the beginning of the speech today. Uh, who's he mad at? I would say I'll, I'll give you a different assessment of what I saw, uh, which is that he gave a forceful assessment, uh, laid out a forceful case to the American people as to why it was time to wind down a 20-year war uh, that has uh, le led to the loss of thousands of lives. And in his view, and I think he made a firm case of this, it's not in our national security interest to be on the ground anymore. In the North Korea, the mm -hmm. ongoing situation there, what's your current understanding of uh, what they're doing with their nuclear program? And is there any renewed outreach to Kim Jong-un and his regime? Well, uh, we have uh, left the door open and obviously reached out through our channels. I don't have an update uh, for you in terms of uh, any response to our offer. Offer remains to meet anywhere, anytime, without preconditions. We're obviously aware of the reports we've seen over the last 24 hours, and we're closely coordinating with our allies and partners on developments uh, and assessing closely. Go ahead, Jeff. Jenna, the president said in his remarks just a short time ago that uh, in April, a deadline was set for August 31st. In fact, in his April remarks, he set a deadline for September 11th. So what changed over these last few months between the August 31st deadline and the September 11th initial deadline? Was that a deadline agreed to, a new time frame agreed to by the Taliban or suggested by them or by this administration? Or what's the discrepancy there? The military uh, gave their assessment that they needed 120 days to uh, wind down our presence in Afghanistan. So we abided by that. But in the April speech, September 11th was the date. The August 31st date just arrived um, between April and now. And he based, bases strategic decisions, uh, I mean, tactical decisions, I should say, on the advice of the military and commanders on the ground and the timeline they needed to uh, wind down our presence. And hence, here we are. It was his timeline, though. It was not the Taliban's timeline. So he moved up the timeline to August 31st. We needed 120 days, and we abided by the advice of the military. Jeff? Uh, Jen, does, can you clarify whether the United States has an agreement with the Taliban to allow more Americans and other Afghans to leave the country? Well, I will say, Jeff, that it is our, not just our expectation, but also the expectation of 100 countries around the world, the UN Security Council and others, that the Taliban will abide by what they committed to last Friday, which is the ability of people to leave Afghanistan should they choose to leave. Uh, there need, do need to be ongoing diplomatic negotiations or discussions, I should say. That's a part of what the Secretary of State and his team will be leading. But I would note that uh, the Taliban conveyed that on Friday, a leader of the Taliban. Uh, again, more than half of the countries in the world have conveyed clearly what they expect, and the UN Security Council signed a resolution yesterday. So those are the diplomatic pieces that have moved forward, but this will be a top priority in the days ahead. The president was critical today and has been critical of President Trump's, former President Trump's deal with the Taliban. 
given that, I'm wondering if this administration or this president gave any consideration to not moving on to former President Trump's special envoy to Afghanistan, who stayed on. Uh, look, I think the, the president wanted to be clear about what he was left when he took office. And he laid that out very clearly in his speech. Uh, but just to reiterate, since you gave me a couple an opportunity, a couple of the points. Um, when the president took office, there was a deadline that was just three months away that included for May 1st. That included no requirement that the Taliban work out a cooperative governing agreement with the Afghan government. It did release 5,000 prisoners last year, including some of the Taliban's top war commanders. So the president was walking into that circumstance. Uh, he wanted to leave Afghanistan. It's a war he has long felt we needed to depart from. He's, feel, he's felt that was long overdue. Uh, but that was the circumstance he walked into. And frankly, there's a little bit of selective memory loss from some of the people who served in the last administration about these circumstances. But my question was actually, why why hold on to this, that, the Afghan envoy, the U.S. envoy to Afghanistan, who served under President Trump? Why did President Biden hold on to him? The president has made changes where he saw fit and has not made changes where he felt the person continued to be the right person for the job. That's not a political decision. Go ahead. Thanks, uh, so we heard from the National Security Advisor, Jake Sullivan, this morning of Good Morning America. He's mentioned that 98% of those on the ground there in Afghanistan and a small number who remain, they have reached out. Uh, they got out, you know, as many people as, as they could. Uh, is the administration essentially placing blame on Americans who could not get to the airport in time? I think what the president stated clearly, and I know that Jake Sullivan has stated clearly, and our Secretary of State has stated clearly, is that our commitment remains. Uh, there is not an end to our commitment to American citizens who are in Afghanistan who want to leave. That's the same for any country in the world, for American citizens who want to leave and want to come home to the United States. It's also important for people to note and understand what the process has been and what we've undergone over the past few months. And that's what the president laid out. Uh, and we think it's still important for the American people here in the United States to understand that. One on Al-Qaeda. So we heard from the president a few moments ago saying that one of the main reasons to go into this war was to get Al-Qaeda. We have heard that Osama bin Laden's security chief has reportedly returned to Afghanistan and has been seen in public. Do you still believe, or does the administration believe that Al-Qaeda is no longer a threat to America? And given the ISIS attacks that we've seen in the last week, how confident is the administration that Afghanistan isn't already a safe haven for terrorists? Well, I think first there is a very big difference between terrorist's ability to attack U.S. troops in Kabul and to attack the homeland. And we, have, we do not assess that any terrorist group on the ground has the ability to attack the homeland in the United States. It is incumbent upon the president, the national security team, to prevent that from ever being the case. But there is a very big difference between those two. Um, I know that the military obviously uh, recommended to the president, or at least you said he rec they recommended to the president that uh, it would be best to leave keep that August 31st deadline, but the president himself, you know, in his interview with ABC News said uh, that if there's American citizens left, quote, we're going to stay until we get them all out. Uh, I think the president's understand or explained his rationale for leaving 100 plus Americans behind. But can you talk about uh, why he allowed his credibility on this issue to sort of go out the door on making a flat promise and then not keeping it? Well, first, I would say that the president remains committed to getting every American citizen who wants to get out out. 
that's that's an enduring commitment, one that will not change, and one we're going to focus on every single day. Uh, I would also note um, that over the course of the last two weeks, uh, we have seen a terrorist attack that took the lives of 13 of our service members. And there was an and part of our, our assessment always is going to be uh, the risks, uh, a risk assessment. So I think the question was, do you leave 6,000 service members as there are uh, heightening threats, heightening risks every single day? Or do you work through a diplomatic process and efforts to ensure that we will have the ability to get these American citizens out? That's the assessment we well, made. After that terror attack, you and he made clear that you weren't going to let the terrorists sort of dictate the timeline. So I, And we I, didn't. And we've evacuated tens of thousands of people since then. I guess, can you... Was it a mistake for the president to have promised that we would remain until everybody left the country? We are going to get every American citizen out. That has not changed. One last one on, um, you mentioned the leverage that we might have mm -hmm. and uh, how access to the global marketplace was a big element of that. Can you kind of explain how the sanctions regime that's currently on the Taliban is going to apply to what is now the government of Afghanistan? Is there a chance for Afghanistan, the country, to access its reserves or sort of uh, avoid those sanctions? Will, will the central bank be sanctioned? Are they going to have that ability as part of this sort of partnership that you've, you've talked about? Well, it's going to be based on what their behavior is. And I think the president clearly outlined that we're going to be watching, as the world will, uh, what the Taliban does. That is certainly allowing American citizens to depart. It's certainly allowing Afghans and our partners to depart. It's also uh, how they operate as it relates to treatment of women, to human rights. There's a range of factors at play here. So I don't have anything to predict for you. Obviously, there's a great deal of economic leverage you referenced sanctions that are already in place uh, that we have, uh, that the global community has, and we'll have to assess how things happen over the course of the coming days, weeks, and months. Go ahead, Jackie. Um, one question on the dignified transfer, and then I want to get to Afghanistan. Some of the Gold Star families have criticized the president, president's conduct um, at the dignified transfer. There was a, a father of one Marine who said that the president appeared to be checking his watch every time a flag draped transfer case came out of the plane. And a sister of another Marine said that it felt like a fake and scripted apology. Um, was the president looking at his watch, and does he have a message to those people uh, who felt that they were offended? Well, I would say his message to all of the family members who were there, those who were not uh, even in attendance, is uh, that he is uh, grateful to their uh, sons and daughters, the sacrifice uh, they made to the country, that he knows uh, firsthand what it's like to lose a child and the fact that no one can tell you uh, anything or say anything or there's no words that are going to fill that hole that is left by that. Uh, He's not going to speak to, and I'm not going to speak to the private conversations. Of course, they have the right uh, to convey whatever they would like. But I will tell you from spending a lot of time with him over the past couple of days that he was deeply impacted by these family members who he met uh, oh, just two days ago, uh, that he talks about them frequently in meetings and, and the incredible service and sacrifice of their son and daughters. I, that is not going to change their suffering, but... Uh, I wanted to convey that still. Go ahead. On the future aid to the Taliban that um, Jake Sullivan was talking about this morning, yeah. he said um, when it comes to economic and development assistance, 
uh, the relationship with the Taliban. It'll be about the Taliban's actions. Should we understand that to mean that um, economic and development assistance could could translate to taxpayer money eventually going to the Taliban at some point? I know it's different from the humanitarian aid we've been talking about, the World Food Program and uh, things like that, but these specific references that Sullivan made this morning. Well, I would I would go back to kind of the earlier question on this. There's an enormous amount of money they have at the federal in the Federal Reserve. I shouldn't say they. The government of Afghanistan has in the Federal Reserve, which they don't have access to right now. That's actually their money that's being held there. Uh, so that's one of the questions here. There are also sanctions that are in place on a number of leaders. Uh, obviously, that prevents them from doing business in various parts of the world. I think that's really what Jake Sullivan was referring to. Um, but to, to get back real quick to this leverage, this issue of leverage, and I understand the U.S. plans to use that leverage for safe passage, but what specifically does the U.S. also want to see from the Taliban that they would use that leverage to get? You mentioned human rights or women's rights. Will the U.S. use its leverage if, for example, the Taliban doesn't allow girls to go to school or appears to be violating basic women's rights? I think the president said that in his speech. Okay. So things like access to the global marketplace would be contingent on girls being able to go to school, women's fundamental women's I'm rights. I'm not here to outline specific parameters for you, but what I can tell you broadly is that human rights, uh, women's rights are certainly what the United States and also the global community will be looking at. And I know the president also said in his speech that that assumption about how long the Afghan government would hold on, how long the military would be able to hold on, he acknowledged that that was a failed assumption. Who is responsible for that assumption? Is the president frustrated with his team at all for having made that false assumption? We don't have the luxury of being frustrated. Uh, our focus right now is on uh, continuing to move forward on our diplomatic efforts. Uh, and continuing to do everything we can to get our Afghan partners and American citizens out and to get Afghans who have fought by our side uh, safely settled in the United States and third countries around the world. Go ahead. Was that like a military assumption, though, or was that an assumption coming from I don't from think the anyone assessed that they would collapse as quickly as they did anyone. Anyone in this room, anyone in the region, anyone anywhere in the world. If you have anyone who did, I'd be surprised. Go ahead. Thanks, Jen. Um, the Afghan interpreter who helped uh, rescue then-Senator Joe Biden when he was stranded 13 years ago in Afghanistan is now in hiding. He told the Wall Street Journal, hello, Mr. President, save me and my family, don't forget me. What's your response to him, and why is he and other Afghan allies like him still in the country if the president believes, as he said today, that the mission was an extraordinary success? Well, I would say first, our message to him is Thank you for fighting by our side for the last 20 years. Thank you for the role you played in uh, helping a, a number of my favorite people out of a snowstorm um, and for all of the work you did. And our commitment is enduring, not just to American citizens, but to our Afghan partners who have fought by our side. And our efforts and our focus right now is, as you heard General McKenzie say and others say over the last 24 hours, is to the diplomatic phase. We will get you out. We will honor your service, and we're committed to doing exactly that. But Thanks so much, Jen. Um, just to build on some of the things my colleagues were saying, President Biden said Americans who uh, were given multiple chances to leave, uh, dating back several months. Uh, but things, as you just noted, changed dramatically in the last few weeks. My question is, how many of those families said they wanted to stay in Afghanistan in the last few weeks, two, three weeks? And is it really fair to say, for the president to say, that they didn't leave when they had the chance 
as you just mentioned, no one expected the collapse uh, as happened. And the president himself for months was publicly saying that the Taliban would not be running things um, and that this and also that this exit would be safe and organized. Well, I, I would say first that no one is placing blame here. I think it's important for people to understand, though, what the process has been. And uh, well, there are between 100 and 200 American citizens who have not yet departed. Uh, we have also evacuated more than 5,500 American citizens and their family members and 115,000 other people from Afghanistan. So more than 120,000 people made their way to the airport or was able to evacuate from the country. It is also very understandable, and I wanna be very clear here, the vast majority, if not everyone, though the State Department would have to speak to this, who is still there are dual citizens who have lived their entire lives in Afghanistan. This is about, I know this is hard for people to understand who grew up and live here, this is where they've lived. This is where their family members are. This is their communities. Maybe they own shops. Maybe they are uh, have 50 family members or 20 family members. This is not an easy decision to leave. We understand that. And what the president is saying is, if you decide to leave next week, if you decided two days ago and we couldn't get you out, we're going to get you out. And that's what his commitment is. Can I ask about the um, immigration system and the refugee situation? Uh, the, the U.S. immigration system is already very overstretched. It's dysfunctional. Um, I wanted to know what steps is the administration taking to ensure that the tens of thousands of Afghan people who are being re resettled here in the United States are not going to be caught up in red tape and that they're going to get the resources they need? Well, first, uh the president has asked the Secretary of Homeland Security to lead this effort. Um, and there is a process that includes not just a thorough background check and vetting process, but as individuals come to the United States, some will end up going to military bases where they will have, will have access to a range of resources, including vaccines. Those who are on who are parolees will be required to get those vaccines. Uh, and what we are working to do is ensure we are leveraging and working with all of the incredible refugee resettlement organizations around the country who are eager and open to helping these Afghan refugees, also to veterans organizations who are eager and open to helping these Afghan refugees uh, resettle in the United States and work through as orderly a process using every lever of government from the U.S. military, the Department of Homeland Security to move this process as rapidly as we can. Go ahead. The president was very clear today, as he has been, about why he thinks U.S. forces should not be in Afghanistan right now. But he was part of the uh, Obama administration in 2014 when the then president decided he needed to send troops back to Iraq after uh, several years to deal with the Islamic State threat. Does the president rule out needing to send troops back to Afghanistan to deal with a similar uh, threat should it arise now? I'm not going to look into a crystal ball in the future, but I think he's been pretty clear. He doesn't have an intention to start another war and redeploy troops to Afghanistan. And what we've seen over the past week is that uh, our over the horizon capacity can work and has worked in going after ISIS targets and killing people who went after our troops. So that's where our resources and our focus is going to be on at this point in time. I have another little bit of a crystal ball question. Okay. Uh, the, I mean, ultimately will, be, ultimately will be up to the president to decide whether to establish diplomatic relations with a Taliban-only or Taliban-led government. 
And while Secretary Blinken and others have, have set some of the parameters for that, does the president himself have a view about whether it would be appropriate to ever have a full U.S. diplomatic relationship with the Taliban? Well, just like in any circumstance, it would depend on the conditions. But there's no rush to recognition coming from any aspect of this government or from the international community. Go ahead. So building on Ann's first question, does the president envision any situation in which he might de deploy a, a large uh, amount of U.S. troops uh, abroad under his presidency? Any sort of foreign conflict that would require the sort of mass troop deployment that he just said we are trying to move fast? Well, I think one of the pieces that he talked about in the speech was how he views our engagement in the world. And I think this is probably why you're asking this question. Um, and the horrible scenes and memories of the last few weeks. And as we think about how we embark on or how we use military force, uh, these moments and these divisions of the last several weeks or months or years should stick in us. And he may stick in our minds. He made clear, first, we must set missions with clear, achievable goals, not ones we will never reach. And second, we must stay clearly focused on the fundamental national security interests of the United States. I mean, the president has not hesitated to use force when warranted. When he feels it's been warranted, he has done strikes in certain parts of the world. He has made very clear, and he said today, our work with you, uh, we're not done with you, ISIS. That was a paraphrase, but uh, he said it better. Uh, but uh, And that, I think, sends a clear message that he's going to go after terrorists. He's not going to hesitate to use the capacities and capabilities we have. But he also wants to be mindful about how we use uh, thousands and, and large swaths of troops. And I think he was sending a clear message about how he views that. Second question. The president has obviously been very consumed by uh, this situation <laughs> and by the hurricane. But as we roll into September, should we expect to start seeing him doing public events again for his economic agenda, particularly facing the months in Congress that, that awaits it? Absolutely. I think you can expect the president to uh, be communicating over the coming weeks on a range of issues that are front and center on the minds of the American people. Uh, certainly, he gave a speech today on Afghanistan, but uh, certainly, you can expect to hear from him more on his Build Back Better agenda, on COVID and his commitment to uh, getting the virus under control, uh, to speak to parents and uh, those who have kids going back to school. There are a range of issues he's eager to communicate about. Absolutely. Go ahead. Um, did the president watch the takeoff of the last flight um, from Afghanistan yesterday? And has he been in contact with... That one I don't know, but that is, but that is a good question because I don't, and I'm taking that down for a little bit because I'm getting tired of listening to her. But. But that's a good question. For the fact that they oversaw a historic uh, airlift operation, uh, one that evacuated more than 120,000 people in the middle of a civil war facing ISIS threats, he's conveyed his gratitude to them and to the work of his national security team repeatedly. When does, um, when does the president plan to sign the bill that was passed in the Senate today that provides temporary assistance to Americans returning from Afghanistan? I'm sure as soon as possible, but I will have to check.
Go ahead, Karen. Thanks, Jen. Just to go back to the line of questions from Justin, sure. you heard the president say today that he remains committed to getting those Americans out. You mm -hmm. said that commitment remains. You said it's an enduring commitment. You talked about the risk assessment that's been underway over the last couple of days or weeks, but it was less than two weeks ago when the president told ABC yes when he was asked, are you committed to making sure troops stay until every American who wants to get out gets out? He said yes. So obviously situations have changed. The threat increased, as you've said, but why should those Americans believe that this commitment is enduring when 13 days ago that commitment changed? Because he's evacuated 5,500 American citizens and their family members and 120,000 total people over the last two weeks, nearly all of them since that time. But uh, you've described the drone strikes as successful and that America still has over-the-horizon capability. Uh, it appears that several children were killed in one of the drone strikes. Can you say that it was still successful if that was the collateral damage? And how will the U.S. determine that it has the intelligence necessary to carry out these drone strikes if civilians are going to be caught in the crossfire? Well, first I would say we take uh, civilian casualties and the possibility of civilian casualties incredibly seriously in our U.S. military perhaps more than any other country in the world. Uh, there is an investigation, and I don't believe the military or CENTCOM has spoken to or confirmed what has been some reporting out there by news organizations. I will note that in CENTCOM's statement just two nights ago, they made clear that their assessment was that there was the vehicle that was the target also had explosives in it. And those explosives may have also led to an impact on the ground, but there's an investigation that's ongoing. That in the two drone drone strikes, the U.S. said terrorists were killed in both of those strikes. I believe that's the assessment that's been put out by CENTCOM. Go ahead, April. Jen, Afghanistan and Ida. First, I want to start with Ida. Um, when Katrina happened, then President George W. Bush put uh, the Gulf Coast in a special category, and then President Obama, as you remember, you were here at the time, kept it in that category for a while to build it back up. Are we at that point now where some parts of the Gulf, Gulf Coast, specifically uh, New Orleans and that area, will be placed in another category to help rebuild yet again because of the devastation of Ida? Well, April, I will say that we're only on a couple days into the storm. I know you've covered these, as you've referenced in the past, and we don't know how to assess yet all of the impacts. But what I think... This is... But I am I'm taking it off for a little bit, so you guys don't have to listen to it. I still have it on in the background. Is there anything anyone would like to find, know about what actually with the hurricane? Right now, Roger, it is a tropical depression, I do believe. 
I think it's a tropical depression that, that's headed up towards Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Virginia, Washington, D.C. Yeah, it's a tropical depression as of right now. And as you can tell, it's up above, it's in um, Kentucky, I do believe. Yeah, yeah, it's... Thank you for coming, Cheeks. Cheekbuster. I hope you I hope you have a I hope you sleep good and thank you for coming. Cause Ida is uh, approximately a hundred miles from Nashville, Tennessee, so And here is um, and this is according to Akarather. And here's some pictures of uh, the from the hurricane. Some of the damage. This is just a little bit of the damage of Hurricane Ida. Thank you for coming.
Yeah. I thought I would share this so people would get an idea. We got about 30 seconds left. The power of water rushing through a culvert and ground already saturated with above average rainfall, too much to handle for this stretch of Highway 26. The ground underneath it gave way and washed out late Monday night as Ida blew through the region. I couldn't imagine driving through here at 1030 last night with it still raining and your headlights on and the road already being kind of dark and then just plummeting off. Mississippi Highway Patrol officials say seven vehicles ended up crashing into this washed out road. Troopers tell us two people were killed, 10 others were injured. This region seeing three to more than six inches of rain from Ida on top of a surplus from recent rain. That's in Mississippi. Uh, You know, there are no lights around in this area. And uh, at the particular time that the road decided to slide, you know, it's, it's unfortunate, but uh, I don't know that the motorists could, could have seen that until they were right upon it at, in too late. The marked detour around this washout is more than 30 miles long. Engineers tell us this is just one of several substantial washouts and road issues caused by Ida. In George County, Mississippi, for AccuWeather, and Bill Waddell. Just give an update on Hurricane Ida and some of the damage. (laughs) This is Louisiana, Jefferson Parish. This is Seidel, Louisiana. I'm in Alabama, so it didn't really, I'm in the southeastern part of Alabama, so it didn't really affect me.
<laughs> the Coast Guard Heartland. Well, the next one, you're going to be shocked. Watch this, people. Watch this. This is damage a hurricane can do. Yeah, that's, that's rough right there, folks. That's A highway collapse last night in southeastern Mississippi under Ida's relentless rain. Our, Our Bill Waddell joins us live from George County, uh, not far from where it happened. Yeah, Bernie, Michelle, good morning to you. This is one of those dangerous situations that we've been talking about when a tropical system like Ida dumps a lot of rain on already saturated ground. Take a look at what's left of Route 26 right here behind us. Uh, basically just a huge hole in the ground ripped apart and washed Now, away. people, you can see the damage of hurricanes. Out. Mississippi Highway Patrol officials tell us two people were killed, 10 others were hurt, and three of those people have critical injuries. But I am, I am stopping it. But thank you everybody for coming. The uh, Peter Ducey did not get a chance to. Now, and Roger, you are, but you do get some hurricanes. But with me, it's mostly hurricanes, and then we might get some um, some uh, tornadoes off of it. But most of our is hurricane stuff. But I want to thank everybody for coming, and I am supposed to go on Joel Davis's uh, thing today. Uh, I will leave it in the Discord if I'm if that's still gonna be the case. But I hope everyone has a good day. Thank you for coming and uh, have a blessed day.